Now we come to the rebuilding of the walls, which was one of the greatest building projects I ever heard of. And it was a tremendous thing that this man did. Now, I want you to notice this because it's a very wonderful way that God is moving. Now, you see, God had led Ezra back there and Zerubbabel, and they came back differently, and they were to rebuild the temple, and they did. And Nehemiah is a layman, and he's going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And God does it differently. God always moves like that, friend. Many of us today in the ministry, when we started out, we tried to imitate somebody. Well, that doesn't work. We just have to be ourselves. Have you ever noticed what God can do? God can take one nose, and he can take two eyes and two ears, and he can make a billion kinds of faces, no two of them alike. He sure can go in for variety, working with just, well, let's see, two eyes, one mouth, one nose, two ears. And look what he comes up with. And then he can take just a finger. And no two fingers are alike. The fingerprints are all different. God does it like that. And he intends for each one of us to be ourselves, you see. Now we have the rebuilding are the walls of Jerusalem, and they're given to us in a most wonderful way. They're given to us, actually, according to the gates of Jerusalem. And ten gates are mentioned here, and you begin with the sheep gate, and we end with the sheep gate. Actually, ten gates, and then we come back to the sheep gate. And if you want to count it again, it would... Eleven, but ten is good enough. So that's all that we have here. Sometimes the question is asked, were there other gates in the wall of Jerusalem? I don't think so at that time. There could have been. But these ten are picked out because these ten tell out the story of the gospel. They give God's salvation. And I have a little book, The Gospel in the Gates of Jerusalem. And I want you to notice that. We begin now with chapter 3, the gospel in the gates of Jerusalem. We are told, Then Eliashim, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate, and they sanctified it, set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mia, they sanctified it unto the tower of Hananiel. Now, here is the sheep gate. This is the gate where it all began. This is the gate where the Lord Jesus came into Jerusalem. We have the record on one occasion when he came in through this gate, came to the pool of Bethesda, you will recall. I think, frankly, that every time he came into Jerusalem until the triumphal entry, then he came in the east gate. Some make the mistake of identifying it with the golden gate. I hear people say, because that east gate is sealed up today, that it won't be open until Jesus comes through that gate. That's not the gate that he's talking about. It's the golden gate. The golden gate is the gate to the temple. And that's the gate that will be open for him, which will lead him right into the Holy of Holies, of course. But the sheep gate is the gate where the animals were brought in for sacrifice. It's the gate that our Lord entered. And I think that what he was doing, he was acting out, as it were, giving in a walking parable the thing that John the Baptist had said way up yonder in the Decapolis country when John the Baptist pointed him out and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And then he identified him again, Behold the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God in his person and in his work. He takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, in the picture of the sheep gate, you have the cross of Christ. Now, this is where you begin with God. It's the only place you can begin with God is at the cross. God is not asking you or me for anything until we've come to Christ and accept him as Savior. 
God has the world today shut up to a cross. And God is not saying anything to the world about what you're doing, your life, your service. He's not asking anything of you until you come to Christ and trusted him. God is saying to the lost world today, just one thing, what will you do with my son who died for you? Now, until you answer that question, he just doesn't have any other word for you. Now, if you turn him down and say, well, I don't want to accept it, then God's not asking you for anything. I think we ought to make that clear. I would like to even make it clear on the radio. If you're an unsaved man today listening, and you hear, and you'll very seldom hear me say anything about supporting the program, but I'd like to say to you, we're not talking to you. I'm talking to believers when we're talking about supporting the program. Because God's not asking you, my friend, for anything. He doesn't want anything from you. He has something to give you. His son died for you. And the sheep gate sets that before us. It all begins at the sheep gate. Now, notice what happened after that. Verse 2 and next unto him builded the man of Jericho. Now, Jericho is the place of the curse. And that's right next to the sheep gate. That's interesting to me. And the man of Jericho came up from down in the Jordan Valley. They came up, and this was closer to them. And they built it right there next to the sheep gate. And by the way, if you'd come around the Mount of Olives on the road from Jericho... You'd see that you're right there at the pinnacle of the temple, and the temple area is there. Now, that's where they built, right next to the sheep gate. You see, Jericho was the city on which the curse was pronounced. You remember that it was said to Joshua, Cursed is the man that rebuilds this city. And in the days of Ahab, there was one who rebuilt it, and the curse came upon him and his sons. Now, it was the city of the curse. Now, you and I live in a world that's been cursed by sin. All you've got to do is look around you today. I don't have to labor this point. You and I live in a world, my friend, in which there is the curse of sin. And my, how man's got this world in a mess. He just doesn't seem to be able to solve his problems. And there are those today in high places that are not Christian that are saying that the problems are beyond the solution that man can offer. And so, you and I live in a cursed world today. Curse of sin is upon it. Only the cross of Christ, only the death of Christ can remove the judgment of sin from your life and my life. Because the soul that sinned, it shall die. My friend, that's a judgment on you and it's a judgment on me. Now, Christ can bear that for you. If you haven't trusted him, you can trust him. Now, we come next to the fish gate. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassaniah build. Now, the fish gate was where the fish were brought in from the Mediterranean and from the Jordan and from other places. And they were great fish eaters in those days. And the fish gate was one you wouldn't have any problem locating, friends. All your nose would lead you to the fish gate. Now, what does the fish gate speak of? Well, the Lord Jesus said to these men that followed him, he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, after they got the gospel, the facts of the gospel, he said, now tarry in Jerusalem. Don't go now until you be endued with power from on high. They needed to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and then filled by the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, they were filled. They became fishermen, not fishing on the Sea of Galilee, but fishing in a world. And today, that's what God is saying to his own. Now, he's not asking any unsaved man to be fishers of men. How could he? He wouldn't even know what he was talking about. But he's saying today to his own, he says, I want you to fish for man. Now, I believe... All of us are, can do it differently. Now, I disagree with these people today that say that you're to knock on every door. I don't think every person can do that. I think some people make a mistake in doing it. God hasn't asked them to do that. 
I think that some people are called to do it a little differently. Prayer evangelism, I think, is reaching more people today than any other way. I read a letter from sisters. They told me they pray for me every day. My friend, this broadcast is going out by the prayer of some sisters in a Roman Catholic monastery. And there are others praying for us today. That's part of our ministry. You can do that. There are others that are standing with us today supporting it. And they're just as vital a part of this ministry as I am. And these that work here in the office. I have folk here that work in the office. I'm a lousy administrator And I'm not a man for detail. I don't like to sit at a desk. I like to be out and moving, going, meeting people. May I say to you, we all got different gifts. In fact, he just took a nose and a mouth, two eyes and two ears, made all of us differently. And he's given all of us a different gift. But I'm of the opinion that all of us need to go through the fish gate some way or another. And you can have part in getting the Word of God out today. Now, if you have a preacher that's teaching the Word of God, you ought to have part with him. He needs your support today, a good minister who's really teaching the Word of God. And I found out as I've gone over this country in many places. Now, there are a lot of places where they say they teach it and they don't teach the Word of God at all. I'm amused at what some people call Bible study during the week. They picked up this that we began years ago, and they just repeat it doesn't mean anything. My friend, the Word of God needs to go out. You and I need to support the Word of God ministry today. Now, when we come down here to verse 4, we just have a list of individuals given. And it's wonderful. They're recorded in the book of life. I'm not going to read the verse because it's just an exercise in pronunciation. And very candidly, someone has raised with me the question, about pronunciation of these Old Testament names. I do not think you can be dogmatic. Now, you may have a self-pronouncing Bible, and I use one too, I'm very frank to confess, and I attempt to follow it. But I think that you can't be dogmatic. No one can be. And that's the reason there is a difference in pronunciation that's given by different ones of these words here. But these are individuals known only to God, and they're going to be rewarded someday the fact that they helped build a wall of Jerusalem. But notice verse 5. It says, And next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. (laughs) Now, these nobles, they thought they were too good to do this type of work. Or they may have had some other excuse. They had lily-white hands, and they didn't think lifting those stones in the walls of Jerusalem. And friends, if you've seen those stones in the walls of Jerusalem, you marvel at these individuals, and you sort of maybe have a little sympathy for the nobles of the Tekoites. They just wouldn't put their necks to the work. You know, it took a lot of manpower to move those stones, and there was a lot of grunting and groaning. And there were a lot of sore backs and sore hands, sore feet. And in fact, they were just sore all over from this. And these nobles, they just thought they were too good for that type of work. And anyway, they were shirkers. And they fell down on the job. And they were right next to the fish gate. And that's where you're to be a witness. And they were not witnesses for God at all. I don't know about you, I'd sure hate to have been in that group. I'd hate to have it recorded in the eternal Word of God that I didn't do what He called me to do. And there are a great many today, I'm afraid, in the church that are not doing what God's called them to do. Now, they're saved. We're not discussing salvation. I hope you understand that. I'll go along. They're saved. But, my, they're not doing anything. They're not serving Him. And the writer to the Proverbs in Proverbs eleven twenty six says, He that withholdeth corn, the people shall curse him. It's a terrible thing to hold back the word of God. My friend, have you ever stopped to think of this? Read this verse carefully again. He that withholdeth corn, the people shall curse him. Now, we are told that there will be certain people that in eternity 
They're going to rise up. His children will call him blessed. And I think they're going to be people who will rise up in hell and curse some folk who went to heaven because they withheld corn from him. He that withholdeth corn, the people shall curse him. Now, today some people are withholding corn. The Word of God is the corn. And they're withholding it from those that are hungry. He said, follow me. I make you fishers of man. We're going to get in his will today. Somewhere along the line, friends, we're going to be involved in a movement that's getting out the Word of God. No one of us can do it. We just have to have a whole lot of help in getting it out. Now, we come to the third gate that's mentioned, and we're told here, verse 6, Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Bethsaidah. They laid the beams thereof, set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. Well, now, we see here that the old gate is mentioned. I told a friend when he and I first time visited the old city of Jerusalem and saw the gate, I said, I'd like to know which is the old gate, because they all look old to me. Every one of them is an old gate. But now this was an old gate, and it was one that had been there from the very beginning, and this group repaired it. Now, the old gate speaks to us of, well, let me read what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah six sixteen. Thus saith the Lord. Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, ye shall find rest for your souls. Now, we're living in a day that's interested in the thing that's new. We just have to have the latest model in an automobile, the latest thing in fashions, and the latest things for the house. man said to me the other day, And it's his fetish to be wearing the latest thing in clothes. And he said to me, I noticed that you have a narrow lapel, and today they're wearing a wide lapel. Well, that doesn't make any difference to me about a lapel on a coat. makes a lot of difference to him because a lot of people, they're interested in the latest thing in fashion and the latest things for the house. My, The man said to me about my home. And it's 21 years old. But he says, you have an old place, don't you? Well, I thought it was new. Now, may I say, my house that's 21 years old, to me, it's not an old house. In the South, I lived in a house that was 100 years old. Now, in Southern California, it's already an old house. And you just need a new one these days. Now, we're living in a day when things are changing radically and rapidly. And the conditions under which our grandfathers proposed to our grandmothers are vastly different from those under which the young folk of the present day deal with the matter. You know, morality is changing. They talk about new morality. But it was even old in the time of Noah. This constant search for something new today is the thing that's leading us to frustration. And it's the thing that's taken many folk down the garden path to a dead-end street with no purpose in life whatsoever. What do we need to do? Jeremiah says we need to ask for the old paths. And there's where we'll find rest for our soul. Great many people are running to psychiatrists and running to this thing and that thing and a new gimmick and a new gadget. And what they need to do is to come to the one who says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll rest you. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly, and you'll find rest for your soul. My friend, that's the place you're going to find it today. And we need to get back. The human heart needs something greater than this mechanical, this electronic, this push-button age in which we live. We need to get back to the old paths. Now, notice what we're told next here in this. We're told in verse 8, Next unto him repaired Uziel, the son of Harhiah, of the goldsmiths. Now, does that ever impress you as being unusual? Well, the stones in the walls of Jerusalem, as I've said, were tremendous. 
They were big. They must have weighed quite a bit. Now, goldsmiths, they sat at benches and worked with little pieces of gold that you had to look at under a microscope. And they weren't accustomed working with these big stones. And I think it is hard work for the goldsmith. But they did it. And God took note of it and recorded here that the goldsmiths, this is what they did. They worked with those big heavy stones, and it is hard work for them. There are folk today that are making real sacrifices for God, and it's hard for them, my friend, but God takes note of it. And then note the next group here in verse 8 again. Next unto him also repaired Hananiah, the son of one of the apothecaries. And they fortified Jerusalem under the broad wall. Now, an apothecary is a druggist. They're pill rollers. You know, little pills. Why, none of them are bigger than you can swallow. They have to be little bitty fellas. And then they're out there working with these great big stones. God took note of them. And God recorded it. I want to tell you, these men were really rock and rollers. They took these great big stones, tried to roll them like little pills. And they were in the rock and roll department. And I don't believe in rock and roll myself, except this kind. And I like to see those today that are really putting their necks to the work, who have to grunt and groan in the Lord's work, who are really doing something for it. I have talked to several pastors today that are really men of God that are killing themselves in the work. I had a wonderful friend in Southern California He had a heart attack and died. He just killed himself in the work of the Lord. He was a real man of God. And I know others today. And I said to a pastor on a tour made up north, well, I spoke to three or four of them. I said, look, brother, I know something about what you're going through and you're overworking. You're doing too much. You better slow down. That's the thing that you ought to do. And friend, if you've got a pastor like that, a good pastor that's doing too much, Go to him. Put your arm around him. That'll scare him to death. But do it just the same. That may give him a heart attack. Put your arm around him. Tell him you're praying for him. And if he is overdoing, telling him not to overdo in these days. These men, they're needed today. And these are the pill rollers and the goldsmiths. Now let's move on down. And I think maybe you ought to see something else. We have the women's liberation movement today, and they had it in Jerusalem in that day. Verse 12, And next unto him repaired Shalem, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. Well, these girls belong to the women's liberation movement. They said, we're going out and help build the walls of Jerusalem. Men do it, we're going to do it. And I believe that if women want to do men's work, let's let them do it. But let's make sure they're going to do it all. May I say to you, the freedom came in these girls going out and doing that for God. Now, I don't believe in women preachers. I'm allergic to them. And I've carried on a battle here in Southern California. It's been a friendly battle with women preachers. Many of them tell me, they will write me and tell me, We're praying for you. We just think you're narrow-minded about this. Well, I just don't believe in it. But always think of the story of the late Dr. Ironside. He was walking with one of his brethren up here in Oakland, California, through a park. And there was a woman up there preaching. And this brethren fellow said to him, My, isn't it a shame that woman's there preaching? Dr. Ironside said this. He says, It's a shame that there's not a man to take her place. And I said to one of our missionaries down in South America, she wrote me, She said, they put me out here in a mission station, and there's no one that can preach. And I've been preaching, and I've wondered whether I'm doing right. And so I wrote to her. I said, look, you just keep preaching till the Lord sends along a man. And I'm going to pray that the Lord will send along a man. Maybe that you'll get a husband this way. But you do it just long as there's no one else around. And that is the thing, these girls, this man, he didn't have any sons. They were all daughters. And they out there building the walls of Jerusalem, and God took note of it, and God recorded Then we have, verse 13, the valley gate. The valley gate repaired Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah. 
And let me just stop with that gate for just a moment. Now, the valley gate, that's the gate that led out of the city, Jerusalem, down into the valley. And it could have been on any side because you have to go down the valley to get out of Jerusalem. And it's the gate through which many of us are called to go. I think of the valley of the shadow of death. And I think we're all walking in that, and that's what David meant. The minute you start out in life, you're walking down that canyon that just keeps getting narrower and narrower. Well, finally, if the Lord doesn't come, you're going to go right out through that gate, and that's the valley gate. But it also has a practical side. It's a gate of humility, the gate of humbleness. And God sometimes has to lead us down through trials and difficulties in order that we can learn the lesson. We are told that faith develops in us these different virtues, and one of them is lowliness of mind. And when he wrote to the Colossians, he called it humbleness of mind. Now, if this is something you can't cultivate, you can't put it on, it has to come from the inside, and it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The man says, you know, I've been trying, said to his friend, says, I've been trying to be humble. The last I've succeeded. The friend says, well, I know you're proud of that. And he said, I sure am. You know, we have to be humbled, as it were, by the Spirit of God. Stories told about that minister in Scotland. Young fellow, he was leading young fellow in his class in seminary. While he was still a student, he was invited out to preach in a pulpit. And he'd never preached before. And he thought since he was the star pupil... He didn't need much preparation. But when he got up before that congregation, it was confusion. He found out that it's easy to get up a sermon on paper in his study, but to get up and deliver it was another thing. And he became frightened. He forgot everything he ever knew. And he left the pulpit at the close of the sermon in great shame and humility. And when he went down, a dear little Scotch lady who'd watched every movement and every moment of his actions from the moment he entered his pulpit till he came out. And when he did, she went up to him and said, Young man, if you'd only gone into the pulpit as you came down, you would have come down like you went up. You know, God has to put us in the school of humility. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And that's a gate that many of us need to go through. Now, in the same verse, and the next one we have mentioned, but the dung gate repaired Malchiah. Now, that's an important gate, but you don't say much about it. And by the way, the dung gate today is the way you get into the wailing wall at Jerusalem. But it was not that in that day. It obviously was around on the other side where it went into the valley of Gehenna. But that's where it is today. Now, the dung gate is where the Filth is carried out. The garbage is taken out. Now, in our Christian lives, the garbage will accumulate. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul dealt with this gate in the Christian life as much as any other. You and I, need to recognize that we need to confess our sins. And to confess our sins means to get the garbage out. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now in verse 15, we have the next gate, but the gate of the fountain required shaling. Now, the gate of the fountain, that refers... I think to what the Lord meant when he said to the woman at the well, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And you remember yonder at the Feast of Tabernacles, he stood up and he said, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture said, out of his belly or his inmost being, shall flow rivers of living water. Now, John explains this figure. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. And Paul could say in Romans 8 9, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Now, the gate of the fountain, 
therefore teaches the fact that every believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God, that he needs an infilling of the Spirit of God, and that when he is filled with the Spirit, that it's not just a well, but a fountain of living water will gush out to be a blessing to other people. And that's what we all ought to be in these days in which we live. Now, when you read down through that chapter, which I'm not going to do today, but you'll come in verse 26 to the seventh gate. And we're told, moreover, the Nathanims dwelt in Ophel under the place over against the water gate toward the east and toward the tower that lieth out. Now, the water gate is where the water was brought into the city. They were able to get some of it in by aqueduct, but not all of it. And it was brought in through the water gate. Now, what does the water gate speak to us of? Well, the water gate, I think, speaks of the Word of God. It was here that Ezra put up a pulpit. And we'll see that when we get a little farther along in this book. He put up a pulpit at the water gate and read from the Word of God. The very gate he put it up was symbolic. And it wasn't an accident. And the New Testament, I think, makes it very clear when it speaks of the washing of water by the Word. The Lord Jesus said to his own in the upper room, Now you're clean through the Word which I have spoken unto them. John 15:3, and then John 17:17 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is true. So that the water gate is the word of God. And that's the gate we're trying to go through to get the word of God out. And we need some water boys. We need some to help us get the water out today. The Lord Jesus, you remember, said something about that you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you and that the Word of God is a cleansing agency. And the psalmist asked the question, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How is he going to get clean? By taking heed thereto, according to thy Word. Now, the startling thing about that water gate was this. It was not repaired. Apparently, when the other gates and walls were torn down, why, this gate remained intact, and that's unusual. It did not need any repairs at all. Does that tell you anything? Well, the Word of God, friends, doesn't need any repairs made on it. There's so many people today that always want to try to prove the Bible is the Word of God. And, of course, there are those trying to prove the Bible is not the Word of God. When I began in the ministry, my ministry was that type. It was an apologetic ministry trying to prove the Bible's the Word of God. But actually, I learned that you don't need to prove it. You just give it out, and the Spirit of God takes care of it. And I've already come to the conclusion, and a definite dogmatic conclusion, that it is the Word of God. I don't think it is. I know it is. And I know what it'll do for you today. I've discovered that also. And therefore, it doesn't need my weak support. It'll take care of itself. It's like the late Dr. Bob Schuler here in downtown Los Angeles. When I first went down there as pastor, he was still pastor of the Trinity Methodist Church. And Dr. Schuler said to me one day, he says, you know, you don't need to defend the Word of God. It'll take care of itself. It says it's like having a lion in your backyard in a cage. Now, he says you don't need to get guards to protect the lion from the pussycats in the neighborhood. He said you just open the door and the lion will take care of himself. And he'll also take care of the pussycats too. And the Word of God's like that today. It needs to be given out. It doesn't need any repair. Not my weak repair. And all that the Lord asks me to do is to give it out. And we're tempted to give out the Word of God on that basis. Now we come today to the horse gate. And we're told in verse 28, From above the horse gate repaired the priests, everyone over against his house. Now what does the horse gate speak of? Well, the horse was that which was ridden by a warrior. 
I wonder if you've ever noticed that in Scripture, that in Zechariah and Revelation, these symbolic horses are powers making war. There's the riding of the red horse of war. It speaks of that. Now, the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a little donkey. Now, that was the animal that kings rode on. And he wasn't meek because he rode on that animal. We think of it as being a meek, humble little animal today. But actually, kings rode on it in that day, especially if they were coming in peace. They only rode on a horse in time of war. And the horse is a symbol of that. Now, that speaks of the soldier service of the believer today. You will recall, Paul says to us, we're seated together in the heavenless in Christ Jesus in Ephesians. That's the great truth in the first part. But when you come to the second part of Ephesians, we're told you to walk worthy of this high calling wherewith you're called. So you got your head up in the heavenlies, but your feet are down here on the ground, and you're to walk. And not only that, it's in that section in the sixth chapter of Ephesians where he says, put on the whole armor of God. There's a battle to be fought, and there's a real battle to be fought, a spiritual battle. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces. And today, though there is this movement, spiritual movement, interest in the Word of God, there are a great many adversaries. Very candidly, another verse that we are using a great deal today is Paul's verse to the Corinthians when he was in Ephesus. He says, a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, we found that on radio. We've never had such an open door as we've had on radio. And friends, I never realized that certain folk were my enemies till I began to give out the Word of God. And it's amazing that you'll be attacked today by certain men that ought to support the Word of God. They claim to be Christians. And you would think if they didn't have anything good to say, they wouldn't have anything bad to say. But they've been very critical of this radio ministry. May I say to you that there are many adversaries, and we need to put on the whole armor of God. And we're told to take the sword of the Spirit That's the Word of God, and that's the only instrument we want to use today. But also, Paul said to a young preacher in 2 Timothy 2.3, he said to him, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, that speaks of the fact that you and I today, my friend, are going to have battles to fight as believers. And if you're not in a battle, my friend, Apparently, you're not standing for the Lord, because I tell you, the battle is waxing hot in many places. And if you take a stand for the Lord, somebody's going to try to cut you down. But we're to do that today, and many of God's believers are having a real struggle. Now, we come to the next gate, and it's the east gate. And here is a gate that fills us with anticipation and excitement. And here we're told in verse 29, After them repaired Zadok, the son of Emmer, over against his house. After him repaired also Shimei, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate. Now, the east gate was a very interesting gate in that day. It was the first one that was opened in the morning. This may sound like a rather naive statement, and one that's self-evident. But the east gate was in the east. It was on the east side of the city. Now, the east gate in Jerusalem is sealed up today. A great many seem to think that's the gate that the Lord Jesus will come through. He may do it. I do not know, but Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says he's coming through the golden gate. Now, the golden gate is in the temple not in the wall of the city. But that east gate has been sealed up. But it was the first gate that was opened of a morning. And why? Because that's where the sun came up. 
And all during the night, the watchman was on the wall, walking up and down, peering out into the horizon. But early in the morning, he came around to the east gate, and he's watching the horizon. And maybe in this city, there are people that were disturbed that night. There may be an enemy out there in the darkness, and they can't sleep, and they are pacing up and down. Finally, one of them looks up and says, Watchman, what of the night? Isn't this thing ever going to end? And the watchman says, Well, still dark out there, but the morning coming. And then after a while, there's that glimmer of light in the eastern arrives, and he moves there and begins to watch. And then... He gives the signal. He says, it's light out here, and I can see out here, and there's no enemy, (laughs) and the sun is coming up. What a sigh of relief goes up from that city. Now, friends, today, the believers ought to be gathered at the east gate because there's a glimmer of light today on the horizon, and the sun may be coming up before long. But before the sun comes up, the bright and morning star appears. Why? Why, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. A shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. We that are alive shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Now, friends, that's the rapture. (laughs) And when it says caught up, one of the other synonyms for caught up is rapture, and that's a good Bible word. When anybody says today that the Bible does not teach the rapture, they're just arguing semantics. And I don't care to argue semantics. I like to argue Scripture. The Scripture says he's going to take his own out of the world before the sun comes up. So there's the little glimmer of light today. I have no dates to give. Unfortunately, there are men today that are trying to say between now and 2000 A.D. he'll come. Now, I'd like to know where they get that, because they must have a private wire into heaven that I don't have access to. And I'd like to get on the line if there's a line to get on. I don't think there's a line to get on, my friend. But I do believe that our Lord is coming and that the next event is the rapture of the church. And we ought to be gathered at the east gate because, my friends, in this day, when it's so dark out there, it's nice to know there's a little glimmer of light and we have a hope. Now we come to the next gate. Well, let me read verse 30 because I think this is interesting. After him repaired Hananiah, the son of Shalemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalik, another piece, After him repaired Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, over against his chamber. Now, that's a good exercise in pronunciation. I didn't need it, but I did it. But the reason I read that is because this man, Meshulam, whoever he was, the Lord knows him and recorded it here, all he did is just repair right over against his chamber where he lived. And friends, you may not be able to witness to the world. You may not be able to even reach your neighborhood, but you can sure reach your family. You can give the word to your family. Wonderful today to have a saved family, but your responsibility is to get the word to them. Not, as a man said to me, says, I feel I should get them saved. And I said, I disagree with you. Your business is to get the word of God to them, the gospel, then they make the decision it's between them and the Lord then. But your responsibility is to get the word of God to them. So that this fellow, he just repaired over against his chamber. And that was all God, I think, asked him to do. Now we're told here, the next gate, after him repaired Malchiah, the goldsmith's son, under the place of the Nethanims, and of the merchants over against the gate, Mifkad, and to the going up of the corner. Now, what is the gate Mifkad? Well, Mifkad means review 
or registry. When a stranger came to Jerusalem, he had to have a visa. Well, not like we have it today, because they didn't need that. But he was stopped at the gate for purposes of registry. It was a gate of review also. And not only when a stranger came in, but when the army had been out and fought a battle and returned. Why, it was through this gate that they came. Here's where David reviewed his soldiers coming from the battle. How he loved them and how they loved him. And most of them would have gladly laid down their lives for him. And when they came under the arch, he was there to thank his battle-scarred men for their unselfish loyalty and daring. You know, we're told today that at the time of the rapture, we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And some people say, oh, that's going to be wonderful. Well, it is. But did you know that there's something going to take place there that ought to make some of us begin to examine our lives just a little bit more carefully? Because we're told very definitely that all of us are to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10, from we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not the great white throne. It's a judgment seat of Christ where believers come. Why? Well, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. This is for purposes of reward. Salvation's not in question. You wouldn't be there if you weren't saved. And it's according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And Paul says on the basis of that, knowing therefore the fear or the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. Paul says, I want to keep busy because I'm going to have to turn in a report whether I'm working eight hours a day. Uh, whether I'm giving the Lord 60 seconds out of every minute, 60 minutes in every hour, and 24 hours every day, and seven days a week. Now, under law, they only gave one day, but the Lord says, I want you. And I don't care what you do, whether it's to wash dishes or dig a ditch. And someone has said, you can dig a ditch so straight and true that even God can look it through. And he's going to look it through someday, friends. Going to see how you live down here. And that's the gate Mifkad. And I can see many a battle-scarred soldier. David knew him, knew what he did. He calls him out of the ranks, and he said, I have a reward here for you. And there's going to be many an unknown Christian that will be called out. And that day, you and I don't know about. We think of the folk we hear about today. We think of the preachers, the missionaries, the officers of the church, Sunday school teachers. Now, I think they're going to get a reward, but I think also that they're probably the greatest rewards are going to go to some of these unknown saints that live for God in this day. This is a wonderful gate to come to, Mifkad. Now, we've been through ten gates. Now, notice verse 32. And between the going up of the corner under the sheep gate, repaired the goldsmiths and the merchants. Now we're back at the sheep gate. Now we know we've been all the way around the walls of Jerusalem because we're right back where we started. And friends, we begin with the cross of Christ and we stop with the cross of Christ. That's the thing that is important. It's the cross of Christ. The sheep gate speaks of the cross of Christ. And I want us today to stand here at the Sheep Gate, and I'd like to tell you a little story about the late Dr. Mackay, the great Scotch preacher who was holding meetings. I guess it was in London, and one night after the service, a young man came and spoke to him. And he said to him, he said, Dr. Mackay, he said, I'd like to speak to you a moment. And Dr. Mackay says, well, I'm taking this train down here, goes back into London where I'm staying, and you walk down with me to the train. And on the way as they walked, the young man said to him, well, what you say about trust in Christ isn't clear to me. I've listened to you very carefully 
And then Dr. Mackay went over it again as they walked down the plan of salvation. And the young man says, I'm sorry, but I cannot seem to feel that I understand savingly. doesn't seem to get through. Well, the great preacher, he heard his train coming. He said to the young man, do you have a Bible? The young man said, no, I don't. Well, he says, here's my Bible. Take it and turn to Isaiah 53, 6 and read that. When you read the first all, you bend down low and you go in right there. Then when you come out at the last all, stand up straight and you'll come out right. And so the young man took his Bible and Dr. Mackay rushed down to get on his train. The young man stood there holding the Bible, little puzzle. He moved over under a street light. He turned to Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the young man, he said, what did he say do? He says, at that first all, bend down low. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The young man says, that sure is a picture of me. And he says, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the young man stood there puzzled. Oh, he said, I'm to stand up straight and come out. And he said then, I'm to trust Christ. I see it now. All my sin was put on Jesus, and the Lord has laid on him my sin. Now I can stand up straight. He's forgiven me. So the next night, Dr. Mackay got there early, and he went up and sat on a platform, kept looking for that young man. Service started, and he hadn't come in, and that young man had his Bible. And after all, Dr. Mackay was scotch, and he wasn't about to depart with that Bible. And so he waited, and finally he saw the young man come in. And Dr. Mackay went down to meet him and to get his Bible. And he said, young man, did you do what I said? The lad said to him, he says, yes, I did. Well, he said, what happened? Well, he said, I did what you said. I came to that first all in Isaiah 53, 6, and it fitted me. And then I came out standing up straight. Because you told me to bend down at the first one. And I stood up straight and come out at the last off. And Dr. Mackay said, then what happened? The young man says, well, I know now that Jesus is my Savior. And I've trusted him. My friend, we begin at the sheep gate. And we come out at the sheep gate. And I think throughout eternity, we're going to talk about the sheep gate. Where the Lord Jesus died down here. 1,900 years on Golgotha, the place of a skull for your sins and mine.